I invite you to turn in the Catechism to Lord's Day 52. I'll read questions and answers 127 through 129. You'll find that on page 257 in the Book of Forms and Prayers and 896 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Lord's Day 52, what does the sixth petition mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means. We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment, and our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in the spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. How do you conclude this prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. This means we have made all these petitions of you because, as our all-powerful King, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. What does the little word amen express? Amen means this shall truly and surely be, for it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. And then if you'll turn in the holy word of God to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 26, And I'll read the whole chapter this evening. 1 Samuel 26, you'll find that on page 317 in the Pew Bibles. And then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east side of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul, sleeping within the encampment, with his spear struck in the ground, stuck rather in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice." But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, 
the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then David said, I, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David. For I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Thus far the reading of God's word. When our Lord and Savior said to us that this is how you should pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, he was highlighting that the Christian life is a battle, that we have sworn enemies who come against us from a variety of angles with a variety of tacts in order to persuade us to sin, to rebel against our God and our Savior. And we need to learn from the Word of God how we are to resist the devil so that he would flee from us, how we are to escape temptation. What does it mean to pray this prayer? How does that look like in, the, in our lives as we live our life day to day before the presence of God? Well, I thought it would be helpful in this series of biographies to look at David here and the temptation that he has to kill his nemesis, Saul. 
And we'll see how it was that David resisted temptation. I, see, I say that David had a nemesis named Saul, and you know the story very well. From the very beginning of Saul's reign almost, certainly from the time when the kingdom was taken away from him and given to David, Saul had been relentlessly pursuing David. He had been unkind to him, tried to kill him in a variety of ways, pursued him all over the country, indeed, pursued him outside of the country so that David laments here in this chapter that they had driven David out this day from the heritage of the Lord. And they had set in effect, because David could no longer worship in Jerusalem or in Shiloh where the temple was, they had set in effect that David could not serve God. Go serve other gods, the gods of the other lands in which we have driven you. David had been driven by Saul away from the presence of the Lord. But this is the last meeting that is going to happen between these two men. We see that succinctly stated at the end of the chapter where we read, So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. No longer would these two men be in this combat and no longer would they see one another. So how does David deal with this temptation to kill the Lord's anointed, to rid himself of this enemy who had caused such hardship from him. Well, that's what we want to see. But the first thing I want to point out to you is that the temptation to get rid of Saul comes at David from a variety of angles. First, it comes from his own heart. It has a personal dimension to it. You can well imagine why David would want to be rid of Saul. He had caused him so much grief and difficulty over the number of years. So that you could see that from within his own heart, the temptation came to kill Saul. Not all temptation, of course, comes from our heart. A good chunk of it does. But sometimes temptation is just there outside of us and not because of a desire within us. But here we can see as we trace David's life over the three chapters of 1 Samuel 24, 25, and 26, we can see that there's progress in David, that he had murderous intentions towards Saul. But the Lord, in grace, in answer to the prayer, do not lead me into temptation, had broken that hatred for Saul in David. You see this, first of all, in chapter 24. It's a situation that's very similar to chapter 26. Saul is following after David, trying to pursue him. And then Saul needs to use the boys' room. So he goes into a cave to relieve himself. And there in the cave were David's men. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And then afterwards we read that the Lord spoke to his conscience, and David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And what is going on there is that David realized that what he was doing was not as innocent as it might seem that it was really a reflection of what was going on in his heart. 
that it wasn't really attacking Saul's robe. It was an attack on Saul himself, that deep down he really wanted to kill Saul, to be rid of him. That's why he says later on, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. So within his own heart, David had these murderous intentions towards Saul, and God kept him from it. And then in chapter 25, you have the account of David with Nabal and Abigail. And the way to understand that story is to see that Nabal is a type of Saul. Nabal's name means a fool. And in our chapter, in 26 verse 21, Saul confesses that he has acted foolishly. And so when David is in the presence of Nabal and asks for some kindness from Nabal, and when Nabal says, who is this David, the son of Jesse, and accuses him of being a runaway slave from Saul, David tells his men to strap their swords on And he straps his own on as well because they're going to pay this Nabal and teach, pay him a visit and teach him a lesson. They are going to wipe him out because of the unkindness, the Saul-like unkindness that Nabal expressed towards David and his men. And if it were not for the wise wife of Nabal, Abigail, who spoke to David, David's murderous heart would have stained his hands, and he would have killed Nabal, his enemy. And again, that's an indication of David's heart. It's what he would have done with Saul if God had not kept him from it. But here in chapter 26, you see that David again has an opportunity to destroy Saul. But he doesn't do so. He doesn't speak evil of Saul at all. He has no murderous intentions towards him. God had removed that from him. Well, you say, but that's not exactly the way it seems because David has taken Saul's spear and a jug of water. How are you to understand that? Well, if you look through the whole narrative of Saul and David, you'll see that the spear plays a very significant role. Right at the beginning of the story, in 1 Samuel 13, at the end of the chapter there, we're given this insight, that there was only two spears found in all of Israel, one in the hand of Saul and the other in the hand of Jonathan. And so the spear becomes a symbol of Saul's authority and power. Well, then later on we see that And Saul uses that spear in an unjust way. David is in his presence playing the lyre because of this harmful spear from God that rushed upon Saul. And Saul hurled the spear because he thought, I will pin David to the wall. And the spear is a weapon against his enemies. Again in chapter 19, verse 9. We read that a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. In chapter 20, verse 33, we see David or Saul again with his spear. This time he hurls the spear at his son Jonathan because Jonathan had aligned himself with David. 
In chapter 22, verse 6, we see uh, that Saul is plotting the destruction of David. And we read there that he was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And then in our chapter 26, verse 7, we see that the spear is stuck in the ground at Saul's head. So that when David takes the spear, there's nothing personal about this. There's no hatred for Saul that David expresses. David de-spears Saul. He leaves them both unharmed and unarmed. As if to say, the battle's over, Saul. There's no reason anymore to pursue me. It's done. You cannot prevail against me. You have no power or authority to do so. Here, I have your spear. You have been weakened and rendered unable to attack me any longer. So it's nothing venomous on David's part. It's not like cutting off Saul's robe or a corner of Saul's robe, which was indicative of his murderous intentions to to cut off Saul's life. No, David even calls Saul, my Lord, O King, with deference and respect. It's a wonderful thing to see how the Lord had changed David's heart over these years. We don't know how many years chapters 24 through 26 recount for us. But over the years, the Lord had worked in David's heart and had taken away that that animosity, that hatred, that venom towards his master Saul, so that David now is able to resist that temptation to destroy the Lord's anointed. I'm sure that some of you know this experience yourself, how the Lord has worked in your heart, has changed you from one degree to another. You can look back years ago when you had these longings for something, these evil desires, but in the providence of God, perhaps, you never had the opportunity to to carry them out. You wanted something, but there was no way you could get it. And you can tell that the Lord has changed you, that He's been sanctifying you bit by bit, because now you have the opportunity to do that sin, but you don't have the desire any longer. It holds no affection for you. That's the work of God's grace in you. That's what God patiently and persistently does in the lives of His children. It's it's part of the answer to the prayer. Do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil. That is to say, work in my hearts, change me, so that I no longer love the things that you hate or hate the things that you love. Change me from within, so that my longings, my desires, my joys would be always to do whatever pleases you, my Lord and my God. And so David here faces the temptation from within. It's a personal temptation. But there's a second thing I want you to notice, and that is that the temptation that David faces comes from the providence of God. There's an opportunity here to kill Saul. And this is exactly what Abishai says to David. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Here it is. Obviously, God wants you to kill him. In fact, if God did want you to kill him, why would God have caused a deep sleep to fall upon the whole camp? Just look at the providence. Look at the open doors. Look at the opportunity here, David. It's just so clear. It's so obvious. 
Here's your chance. Put your enemy to death. I think that happens a lot to people, that they guide their ethics, their lives, by the providence of God, and think that because the opportunity is there, it's an obligation for them to follow through on it, or at least that's the way their sinful heart justifies it to themselves. If God didn't want me to date this unbeliever, he certainly wouldn't have introduced me to her. Obviously not. And if God didn't want me to work on the Lord's Day, He wouldn't have given me this job offer that requires me to do so. And, and think about pastors, you know, they can be in difficult situations in a particular church, and then a call from another church comes, and they say, obviously the Lord wants me to go, to leave the church in its mess, because providence has spoken, and I must heed providence. The opportunity means an obligation. Well, that's the temptation facing David here. But it's very helpful for us to know that in both the Hebrew and in the Greek, the word for tempt is the same word for test. So that when God comes, or when God in His providence comes, what is from Satan's perspective a temptation for you to sin is from God's perspective a test for you to win. Satan says, here's an opportunity grab it. It's obviously from the Lord. God says, here's a test. Will you be faithful? You have the opportunity to sin. It's within your grasp. Will you be faithful to do so, to disobey me? Or will you be faithful to obey me, to resist the sin, and to follow my will, whatever the cost and whatever the opportunities there are? You cannot use the providence of God, the openings, the opportunities as leading you to sin. It is a temptation. It always has been. I read somewhere some time ago about a person who narrowly escaped being killed by a bomb. This is what he says. Think who this person might be. It was providence that spared me. This proves that I am on the right track. I feel that this is a confirmation of all my work. Now, you think a Christian must, must have said that, or, or a missionary must have. Those are the words of Adolf Hitler. In July, on July 20, 1944, there was an assassination attempt a briefcase with a bomb was placed near to where Hitler was sitting. The person who had placed the bomb there left the room, and the person who was sitting beside him moved the suitcase with his foot, not realizing that the, the suitcase was actually, or the briefcase was actually a bomb. And when he moved it, he had put it on the other side of the pillar from where, or the pedestal from where Hitler was. So the bomb detonated. Hitler's trousers were ripped to shreds, but he survived. And he said, it's clear, providence is smiling, smiling upon me. If God didn't want me to do what I was doing, certainly providence would have stopped me. You can never use providence as a license to sin. You'll be tempted to do so. You can think of Jonah. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And wouldn't you know 
there is a ship going completely the opposite way, and he has just the right money in his pocket for the fare. Certainly, God must want me to go elsewhere. Providence is often a temptation for you to sin, and you must resist it. But then there's a third temptation to sin. So it's personally from within, providentially from without, and then the peers around you. Notice what Abishai says to David. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. So there's pressure from our peers to sin. Now, you might think that this is just a young person problem, and you young persons know that it's a problem. Some of the things that you do is not necessarily because you want to do them, but because others are doing them, the songs that you listen to, the, 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 the words that come out of your mouth. It's because there's, there's some pressure, maybe not expressed, but certainly felt, some pressure to be like everyone else. And this was the pressure that David felt. His, his counselors said, this is what you should do, David. You should, you should kill him. Here's the opportunity. God has opened the door for you to do so. And he's been a cruel and harsh king. Why wouldn't you do it? But it's not just teens that feel this pressure. All of us do. There's a temptation when you hear a, an inappropriate joke to laugh along with your peers or coworkers because you don't want to seem to be prudish or old-fashioned. Or, or, or when you're even with your, when you're with brothers and sisters and and they hold different theological opinions. And, and you, you are perhaps are on a matter a little bit stricter than they are. It, it's so easy just to, to fade in with them, to, to do what they're doing. Who likes to be called legalistic? We want to have people's approval and friendship and affirmation. And uh, certainly David would have felt so too. All his advisors would have warned him would have encouraged him, rather, to kill Saul. Because they all felt the difficulty of being on the run for so long. And David resists them as well. And so should we. It is a grace. It is a grace when God works in our hearts by His Spirit and changes us so that we no longer care what people think about us when we no longer live for their approval or to live for their applause, we no longer live in fear of man so that we do what they wish us to do or what we think they wish us to do. Temptations come to us from within, from providence, and from our peers. Now, how are we to resist temptation? Well, I think it's helpful to look at how David resisted temptation. Or, or to put it another way, what graces did God work in David's life? In answer to the prayer, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What graces did God work into David's life so that he was able to resist these temptations? And I want to notice two things with you. First, David had a commitment to doing God's will. Look at what he says in verse 9. 
when he's encouraged by providence and by his peers to kill Saul. David says, Who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Verse 11, The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. That is, David was committed to doing the will of God. He wanted to obey him. He wanted to please him. He shuddered to go against the Lord's command. He knew that Saul was the Lord's anointed, that he had been placed there by God himself, and that to take the life of Saul was to disobey the command of God. And that should be the forefront of our mind. That should be our heart's desire also, always to please our God, to love his commandments, to run in the way of his precepts, to delight in his law, to say, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. To be grieved when we sin and to find joy and happiness in the will of God. That will enable you by the Spirit of God to resist temptation because sin will leave a distaste in your mouth. It will hold no attraction to you because what you long to do more than anything else is to please God. So David was committed to the will of God. And David was not only obedient to God's will, he was also submissive to God's way. So David understood that the kingship was his, that he had been anointed, that he was going to be Saul's successor. He knew that. And here was an opportunity for him to speed up the process. But he says, no, I'm going to do the Lord's will and I'll do it in the Lord's way. Notice what he says there in verse 9 or verse 10. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. You see what, what, what David's saying? I don't need to take things into my own hands. I don't need to disobey the will of God in order to help God fulfill his own plans and purposes and promises. I just need to trust the Lord that the Lord will do as he has promised in his own timing and in his own way. He'll remove Saul from the throne and open up the way for me to become king. I don't know how he'll do that. Perhaps the Lord will just strike him when he's sitting at home reading the news. Or maybe he'll be in battle and someone will kill him. I don't know. But I leave that to the Lord and I submit to the Lord's will for my life. You'll find this a very helpful thing, actually, in your fight against sin. Because I don't know if you think about it this way, but sin is often a display of a lack of trust in the Lord. Because sin wants something and wants it, whether God wants you to have it at all or whether God wants you to have it now. And so sin is often pursuing pleasure. But you know the Lord will give you pleasure, that he's promised to do so. But you have to leave it up to him when that pleasure will come and in what way it will be. It it might never be in this life. This, This world and your experience of it might be a veil of tears, cloudy, without much sunshine. 
And you'll be tempted to, to bring joy into your life in some other way through drugs or promiscuity or, or living for pleasure or doing your own thing. But if you would just trust the Lord, that He'll, he'll do what He says, he'll, he'll do what's best for you, he'll, he'll do all that He promises to do for you, but He'll do it in His own way, that you don't need to take matters into your own hands. You know the Lord will vindicate you. You don't need to defend yourself. You know the Lord will care for you. You don't need to do things that are contrary to His will. Just trust the Lord. That's what David did. He knew what the Lord had promised, and he trusted that the Lord would bring it to pass in his own timing. David was obedient to the will of God, submissive to the way of God, and in that way he was able to resist the temptation no, I'm not going to take the life of Saul. Whatever I might wish myself, whatever providence might suggest, whatever my peers might encourage me to do, I will not do it because I want to do the will of God and I want to submit to the ways of God. And you know the story. David does become king. In fact, we have this testimony from Saul's own lips, his his enemy's lips. In verse 25, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And indeed, he did many things, and he succeeded in them. So temptation comes at us from a variety of ways. And when we pray, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we are not only praying that, but we're committing ourselves to resisting temptation wherever it rears its ugly head. And the way to do that is to be so committed to doing the will of God and to doing God's will God's way. You know, we call the Lord's Prayer the Lord's Prayer. Usually we call it that because that's the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray. But it might be helpful to think of it as the Lord's Prayer, that is, the prayer our Lord Jesus Himself prayed. To think of Him in His humanity, empowered by the Spirit of God, knowing that He was going to face temptation, that the enemy was going to come against Him. Remember in our reading last Lord's Day from Luke 4, that uh, Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, and then He leaves Him for a more opportune time. So that the whole life and ministry of our Lord Jesus, He was under attack from His enemies. There, there was... Of course, there was no sinful tendency within our Lord to, to tempt him to sin. But there certainly was a desire within the Lord Jesus to have close and unbroken communion with his Father. And so he would be, he would be eager to avoid anything that would rupture that division. And he knew that the cross would rupture that division. So he, he would desire, if there was some way for the cross not to be his experience... He would love that. He would be tempted in that way to avoid the cross. And, and then think of the opportunities, even, even in the wilderness temptation, the opportunities for Jesus to, to avoid the cross. Satan says, just bow down and I'll give you all the nations as your inheritance. Or, or think about the Jews after he had fed them from with the five loaves and two fish and they, they took him to, to make him king. What an opportunity. Certainly this was what God was working out for him. 
that, that his heavenly Father was providing in his providence a way for, for him to avoid the cross. But, but Jesus had to resist that temptation as well, and, and he had to resist the temptation from his peers. Just come down from the cross and, and we will believe you. That's what they were all clamoring for him to do. And Jesus resisted it all. Why or how? Because he wanted to be obedient to his Father. His Father's will was his food and drink. He wanted to be obedient to his Father, and he wanted to submit to his Father's way. Not my will, but your will be done. That's how the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit, lived his life. And then it was enabled to resist temptation. And that spirit is working those same graces in you and me. A commitment to doing the will of the God and a willingness to submit to the ways of God. And as by God's grace we see these worked more and more into our lives, then we'll also see that temptation loses its power and that the life of obedience is increasingly what is our joy and delight. So pray. Pray that God would deliver you from temptation. That if He does bring you into temptation as providence, pray that He would also keep you from evil so that you might please Him because He is deserving of all praise and glory, both now and forevermore. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You that we can trace Your work of grace in David's life, that we can see it as well in the life of the Son of David, our Lord Jesus, and that by Your grace we can see it as well in our own lives. And we pray that You would shape us more and more to be like our elder brother, and that we would be able to resist temptation because we love Your law, and we love your will. We pray for our brothers and sisters. Some, some here this evening are going through very deep waters precisely because of temptation and giving in to sin. They feel overwhelmed and weak and unable to resist. Lord, we pray that by your word you would encourage them not to give up, that you would remember that, uh, remind them rather that Christ has already won the battle and that in the power of our risen and exalted Christ, they are able to say no to sin and yes to obedience. Help us all to do that, we pray, so that we might please and honor you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.